If I was only allowed to talk about one thing from my experience within the hell rodeo that was coming forward, my thesis to complete this PhD from hell would be that no one actually knows how to apologize. In this final chapter of the first season of Peaches, I'm going to throw myself under the bus. I will be the example as to why apologizing is much more beneficial for the wrongdoer than it is for the victim. This is Peaches, a series of essays dedicated to the things I learned while dedicating my life to never being raped again. My name is Marika Freund, and this is Chapter 8, Happily Ever After. And just before we begin, I do want to issue a trigger warning. The subjects of rape and sexual abuse do come up in this podcast, so if that's not for you right now, then you do you, and... Hopefully, we'll get to get together again at another time. I'm pretty sure that I have this podcast labeled as explicit, so I feel very comfortable saying, holy shit, I cannot believe we are finally at the last chapter of season one of Peaches. If you've been with me through this whole time, holy cow, thank you. This has been, well, a wild ride for me. I think you've probably just, I don't know if you've been with me through this whole thing since it launched, or um, if you just found it and have been listening through um, chapters one through eight, but this was a really big thing for me, especially chapter seven. Chapter seven, um, Actually, the date right now is Saturday, June 3rd, and it's 4.56 p.m., and I have five um, five very good friends who have been very intimate with this podcast and my process, currently listening to Chapter 7 to make sure that, um, that it's safe for me to put online. It really was the first time I've ever addressed my anger publicly with anybody, um, it was a really big deal. It was a really, really big deal for me. So to those incredible women in my life, thank you. I am beyond lucky that you're in my circle. And I really hope that everyone listening is fortunate enough to have that in their life. It's so, it's so vital. I really believe that if I had then what I have now, there would be no referring back to those seven plus years. Well, really nearly eight years as the hell rodeo in my ramble for like, like this part now, (laughs) the part before the podcast where I ramble a bit about what it took or what I was going through when I was actually writing, um, writing each chapter at the beginning of 
in my ramble for chapter seven, I talk about how it took me two weeks to want to record that chapter. What I don't think he realizes is that it took me over a month to finally edit it. And I think because of how scary it is and with what I'm trying to help create with this season one of Peaches that is very much a social experiment, it's so important that I end it with the lens being on me. I am by no means perfect. And I really do. I just hope that there's so much healing from this for other women that we can start to see our previous behaviors from a place of love and that we can start to learn how to say I'm sorry. And so we're going to look at how I really needed to say I'm sorry and what happened to me when I didn't. I also am going to end this series with an idea that I hope you do take to heart or you think about, you don't have to take it to heart, but just think about it because I think I'm right. And if I'm not, let me know. Nobody's written to me about this podcast yet. Um, I could be setting myself up for something there. So without further ado, I give you chapter eight, happily ever after. While Canadians are outrageously famous for saying sorry, I think that we're really awful at it. Although it's not really only the Canadians who don't know how to apologize, it's my opinion that we're living in an era where nobody knows how to do it at all. It's been rare for me to receive a genuine, unprompted apology. And when those happen, they're really gorgeous moments. But most commonly, I'm used to receiving apologies in one of two situations. The first is when you already know or anticipate that you're going to be forgiven. And the second is when saying sorry isn't even warranted. And the only appropriate response is, oh, honey, you have nothing to apologize for. I think it's scary to apologize and not so much because of the action itself, but I think it's largely because nobody understands why they should apologize. I think a lot of times people see it as a way of giving up their power instead of a way of being able to access peace and peacefulness, in my opinion, has become way, way too underrated. So I think because of this lack of understanding of peacefulness and of why you should apologize as a global society, we've developed an aversion to taking responsibility for our actions or our inactions. It takes a lot of strength to own your own shit. It takes a very brave person to be able to say, I messed up. It really stinks to feel badly, and it's also not fun to be punished if you don't feel badly about what has happened. Now, if you're listening to this, I'm assuming you have a conscience. (laughs) So if you have a conscience, because not everyone does, feeling badly about something is really awful. 
especially if you have a lot of reasons to feel badly. We have entered this fascinating phase of the human evolution when it comes to how we punish people. Instead of gathering together in a physical courtyard to tar and feather the wrongdoer, we now have gathered on the World Wide Web to cancel people. If we consult Wikipedia, cancel culture is a phrase contemporary to the late 2010s and early 2020s, used to refer to a culture in which those who are deemed to have acted or spoken in an unacceptable manner are ostracized, boycotted, or shunned. Those subject to this ostracism are said to have been canceled. Now, getting canceled was around long before social media. The original cancel culture was public hangings or, you know, when you put people in those wooden things and throw tomatoes at them. Now we don't kill people or throw tomatoes at them. We just make it impossible for them to show their faces in public, which actually could potentially be a fate worse than death. Cancel culture, in my opinion, has always been rampant throughout our collective society. Social media just raised the stakes. I don't feel that whistleblowing is in the same vein because it's about the truth and it's about stopping destructive behavior. Whistleblowing can, however, slide into the territory of cancel culture, and this happens when the desire to honor the truth shape shifts into the ugly desire for power. And none of this can be about power if we actually want to experience the dismantling of rape culture. So we can't force people into apologies because it is a misuse of power, just as forcing anyone into forgiveness is a misuse of power. I'd like to clarify that in no way am I condoning hate speech or racism or acts of brutal violence. I think that those fall into their own category. And when you condone behavior like that, saying sorry or apologizing isn't enough. There is another level of having to take responsibility for your actions that is very, very important. Because if something that has happened or something that you've done has ruined somebody's life or changed their path down one that you wouldn't go yourself, well, you have a responsibility to one, help bring them back and two, to make sure that they're okay. I do really believe that. But cancel culture has made apologizing incredibly scary. And this is why I think that apologizing can feel like the worst thing ever. Because in this day and age, you do run the risk of getting canceled after you apologize. And if this happens after an honest mistake, or let's face it, unplanned ignorance, because there is a lot we need to unlearn from the kind of behavior that has been socially acceptable for quite some time. Well, you're fucked. And it's my opinion that wanting to be a better person is a very honorable act. And I think that we need to start honoring this desire a bit more strongly and deeply. After everything I've observed and witnessed, it is my opinion that the real issue is that we all desperately need to regroup and look at 
what it actually means to apologize, what it actually means to forgive, and why we should be doing both. But I honestly don't think we can look at either of these two things until we've reintroduced a term that, as a global society, we disposed of a long time ago. If you've listened to chapter three, Lion's Heart, you'll remember that I poo-pooed the Bible, that I didn't think it was a good handbook for this century. I still wholeheartedly stand by the statement. For example, drag queens and the LGBTQ community, I believe, are divine humans sent from the heavens to make this world more bright and sparkly. And I also believe that these beautiful humans deserve equal rights. I also believe that abortions are a divine gift sent down from the heavens. It's a right every person with a uterus deserves to have access to. So I don't really believe that the Bible is a handbook that we should be leaning on for all of our guidance moving forward. That being said, I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because if you've listened to chapter five, Wisdom from a Baby Elder, part one, you'll know that while I have my own complicated relationship with spirituality, I think it's a really important part of our human existence. I do believe that we have a soul, and as Carolyn Mace teaches, that our soul has its own language. It's just that this spiritual and holy language got wrapped up in religion. And when it comes to the word I want to reintegrate back into our vocabulary, just like how Canadians have said, sorry, so many times that the word has lost all of its meaning, so too has this word become abused and misused thanks to Catholicism. The word I think we need to desperately reintegrate back into our vocabulary is sin. We need to bring the concept of sinning back into our everyday vocabulary in order to finally learn how to apologize and how to forgive again. Now, understandably, when things like abortion and being part of the LGBTQ plus community or participating in drag are described as sins by Bible thumpers and religious fanatics, I understand needing to put the word sin into a rocket and blasting it into the sun. I understand wanting to see that word turn into cosmic dust, much like how the planet Melmac exploded in the 1990s sitcom ALF. But if we divorce the word sin from the Catholic Church, we might have something that an inclusive global society could be able to work with. Now, Carolyn Mace in her work around holy language really describes the concept of sin beautifully. So I'm going to lean on her here in order to explain why I think we cannot have an apology or forgiveness without it. First and foremost, what Caroline teaches is that the concept of sin and sinning isn't actually Catholic. They, just like Canadians and the word sorry, made it famous. What we generally know sinning to be, or as it's defined in the Cambridge Dictionary, is the offense of breaking or the breaking of a religious or moral law. 
Now, as soon as we put the word religious into a definition, the word gets, understandably so, blasted into the sun. Blown up like the planet Melmac. This definition, too, I think really misses the point. In her 2019 workshop on holy language, Carolyn Mace is able to define sin without using the word religion or bringing the now abstract concept of moral law into its meaning. She defines sin as a conscious act that, by choice, you are consciously doing something to harm another person or you know fully that your action is something that will change another person's life for the worse. You know it, and it doesn't stop you. How many times have you received a half-assed apology from someone that included a phrase along the lines of, I never meant to hurt you, even though you and the other person both know full well that this isn't the case at all? It's excruciating to hear this because when a phrase like that is thrown into an apology, it's not an apology anymore. It's an aversion of the truth. It's just another way of saying, if you don't forgive me, I'm going to make you the bad guy in this situation. Now, one of my big goals in this podcast is to make broaching uncomfortable subject matter more accessible. So I decided to do a very Gen Z thing, something I'm sure Carolyn Mace would probably roll her eyes at and really detest. But I just want people to stop acting like ding-dongs, and I want people to heal. So I created, nay, found a whole new word to use when talking about the concept of sinning. I do think that the Catholic Church has abused their power to the point in which we need to redress and readdress certain concepts, especially the ones associated with healing in order for them to be reintegrated back into our everyday practices. So I'm putting the word sin in drag. I took Carolyn Mace's definition and put a rhinestone blazer on it. I Mrs. Doubtfired the shit out of sin so it can do what it is supposed to do without generating an understandable amount of trauma. What I did was open my notes app, close my eyes, and with my right index finger, pressed a few buttons on my iPhone keyboard. When enough consonants and vowels came together in a way that didn't sound garbled, I was gifted the glittery new outfit for the new star of the forgiveness trio. I really did this, and I have to say, I felt like a giant turd while it was happening. I felt like such a turd that when my husband very innocently came over to see what I was up to, I reacted like an embarrassed weenie and told him to go away because I couldn't bring myself to say, without the context, I'm trying to find a new outfit for the word sin. Like I mentioned in chapter six, Survivor, healing is messy. What I don't think I homed in on is that sometimes the road to healing is also totally embarrassing.
In order to play it safe, because high-tech companies are coming up with new words all the time, I promptly googled the letter formation U-V-E-I-T-I-S to make sure it wasn't a word that already existed. Turns out, it is a word that already exists. Uvitis is actually a form of eye inflammation that happens when your body is fighting an infection. And if left untreated, it can lead to loss of vision. How poetically accurate, eh? But like any good costume designer, I took the word uvitis to the tailor and had it modified to fit the definition that Carolyn Mace provided. So I'm fully proposing this new-ish word for Sin's comeback drag performance. The word is uvite. It's a verb, and it's to knowingly harm another person, whether by active choice or through active inaction. It is the ability to see that what is or is not going to happen will, in fact, change that person's life for the worse and knowingly allow said thing to occur. For clarity, within the rest of this chapter, I would say the past tense is uvited, future tense is to uvite, and the gerund form being uviting. And lastly, for trending purposes, and I say this with my fingers crossed that someone will add this to urbandictionary.com, someone who uvites a lot would have a mad case of uvitis. So now that we have dressed up the word sin in drag, and as a fun digression, I so feel like Uvite's performance song would be lip syncing to Meredith Brooks's bitch. <laughs> we potentially have a less threatening and less traumatizing holy trinity, if you will, when it comes to reconciliation. Because without admitting having Uvited, it's not a real apology and forgiveness isn't possible without the admission of uvite. Now, I've spoken about how the admission of having uvited is important when it comes to reconciliation, but I haven't actually spoken about how the admission of uvite is an important act of release for the person who has uvited. I haven't talked about why we need to apologize. So I'm going to throw myself under the bus by telling you a fairy tale about how I uvited in the past and how not apologizing for uviting ate away at my soul and what magical thing happened for me after I finally did apologize properly. So grab some more popcorn and or cocoa and get cozy. And once again, apologies in advance for talking about myself in the third person. Once upon a time, in a suburban city in southern Ontario, there lived a princess named Marika. Princess Marika didn't grow up in a safe and loving home. Because of this, she lived every day with a lingering sense of worthlessness and a deep longing for someone to save her. 
while she was being held prisoner in a scenario that no true princess deserves. Her lingering sense of worthlessness meant that when she had a thing that was hers, she was quite possessive of it. She didn't have many things per se, but one of the few things she felt made her unique was that she always had fun, loud sunglasses. Sunglasses were one of Princess Marika's things because, in all honesty, she really just hated her face and wanted to cover it up. She grew up being told she was ugly, and sunglasses helped hide what she had been taught to be ashamed of. When Princess Marika was in the 11th grade, the new cohort of freshmen for the arts high school she attended brought in a really lovely, charming, wonderful young woman who just so happened to also have an affinity for fabulous sunglasses. Let's call her Barbie. Barbie's signature pair of sunglasses were bright red with deliciously solid, thick, plastic frames. They were brilliant, and everyone complimented Barbie on them. Barbie, very innocently, became a threat to Princess Marika and her thing. That same year, a new teacher arrived to be the head of the drama department. This program head decided to purge the school of all of the old props, costumes, everything. In this grand purge of whatever didn't spark joy, Princess Marika and her classmates were given free range to take whatever they wanted. So that year, Princess Marika and her fellow classmates got into the intoxicating habit of taking whatever they wanted from the drama room. Their daily outfits became delightfully extreme, and they were, more or less, living the wet dream of every teenage thespian. One day, Princess Marika found herself alone in the drama room, and to her surprise, Barbie's fantastic, bright red sunglasses were sitting on the countertop not too far from a pile of things that were now up for grabs. Now Barbie never went anywhere without those sunglasses. So it was a strange and rare occurrence that they were sitting where they were. Everyone in the school knew Barbie's sunglasses and everyone knew, including Princess Marika, that Barbie was not looking to part with them. But they were fabulous, and they were a few feet away from another pile of costumes that were up for grabs. Princess Marika, knowing that Barbie would be devastated if her sunglasses disappeared, took them anyway. Not because Princess Marika wanted to hurt Barbie, but because Princess Marika wanted to have those sunglasses and the compliments that always came with them. They were just close enough to that pile of free things for Princess Marika to justify taking them. In that moment, she decided that she deserved to be the rightful owner and that they were fair game because of where they were left behind. Not too long after taking the sunglasses, Princess Marika's moral compass switched on 
and she felt like an ogre both inside and out. The problem was that her moral compass redirected her the exact moment it was too late to return them covertly. She couldn't pretend that she didn't steal them in a moment of weakness. She also didn't find herself alone in that classroom again, so if she put them back where she found them, Princess Marika would have to admit that she stole those sunglasses. To make matters more complicated, Princess Marika was on the student council. She couldn't risk her position or her scholarships. She couldn't risk being disrespected by her peers. She had already tried talking about the deep traumas she was experiencing at home with them, and she wasn't taken seriously. Instead, the mental health of her family and the abuse that she had to endure became what everyone made fun of at parties. Princess Marika was a joke because of what she was dealing with at home, and her friendships felt highly conditional because of it. She was in a real pickle. She finally had the sunglasses she wanted, but couldn't wear them because she would be exposing how she had uvited against Barbie. But one day, a few months later, when Princess Marika was feeling especially confident, she decided to wear Barbie's sunglasses. She didn't think that she would run into Barbie, but Murphy's Law is a strong one, and Princess Marika ran right into Barbie with those fabulous red sunglasses on. Rightfully so, Barbie confronted Princess Marika and asked Princess Marika if they were her sunglasses that went missing from the drama classroom a little while ago. In a bold-faced lie, Princess Marika said, No, these aren't your sunglasses. I got them in Kensington Market. Barbie knew that Princess Marika was lying. Princess Marika knew that Princess Marika was lying. But Princess Marika said no, and that was that. As Princess Marika got older, and as more time passed from the moment her 16-year-old self stole Barbie's sunglasses from the drama classroom, the worse she felt about it. And Princess Marika thought about it a lot. About how stupid she felt about taking something that wasn't hers about how badly she felt for how she behaved in such an entitled way, about how she hurt another woman for her own gain, and it wasn't even a big gain, about how badly she felt about not being confident enough just to say, yeah, I was an asshole, here are your sunglasses back. The more time that passed, the worse her crime seemed to get. It just kept growing in her head. In fact, her behavior haunted her more than ever. She felt so badly about this one moment in her history that even in moments when she was accused of stealing when she hadn't, she didn't fight back. For example, when she was written up at the vegan restaurant she was working at. Princess Marika's first boyfriend had come in one day with his brother while she was working and decided to talk some big talk about how he got food there for free. Unfortunately, the woman working the juice bar that day, who just didn't like Marika very much, overheard him, and she reported Princess Marika to their manager for stealing. The saddest part is that Princess Marika's boyfriend only thought he was getting food for free. Princess Marika always paid for their food at the end of her shift, but she signed the piece of paper that labeled her a thief, 
let her manager yell at her, and then kept her head down at work. More years went by, and Princess Marika was still thinking about what she did that day in the 11th grade. And then, during the COVID-19 pandemic, nearly 18 years later, Princess Marika found out that she now lived in the same neighborhood as Barbie, and that they both shopped at the same grocery store. It was so lovely for Princess Marika to see her, and Barbie greeted Princess Marika with such warmth and kindness. It was possible. She had become even cooler and more beautiful after high school, which made Princess Marika feel 1,000 times worse. But Princess Marika didn't feel 1,000 times worse because Barbie was doing so well. On the contrary, her gorgeous light just made Princess Marika feel like an ogre more than ever. By this point in Princess Marika's life, she had done the whole hot goo thing she talked about in Chapter 6 Survivor so many times that she was no longer a jealous person. Princess Marika was just upset and disappointed in herself because she had knowingly done something that hurt this incredible person. She knew when she was 16 years old that taking those sunglasses would hurt Barbie, but she did it anyway. Her action in the past wasn't a boo-boo or an accident. It was Uvite. Princess Marika sat and thought about the person she wanted to be. About everything that she had learned throughout the Hell Rodeo. About the kind of person she wanted to be once the publication ban was finally lifted on her name. She thought about how she would want the people who let her down to behave and what she would want from the people who knowingly invited against her. Because, well, there were a lot of moments of Uvite against Princess Marika. A couple of hours after her delightful encounter with Barbie, Princess Marika decided to come clean and apologize for what she had done. She knew it was the right thing to do, and if she had to eat crow, well, it was about time that she did. Terrified of what kind of punishment might come from admitting her uvite as a hormonal teenager, Marika wrote to Barbie and apologized to her in an Instagram direct message. She apologized for taking the sunglasses and explained that she wasn't in a good place at that point in her life when she took them. And then, she waited. Whatever happens next, Princess Marika thought. At least I like my face now. Barbie promptly responded. But while Princess Marika didn't have to sit and wait in panic for too long, she could feel her heart beating in her ears and the cold sweat developing under her arms. She opened the response from Barbie. And when she opened the message, it was as if the glow from the screen of her iPhone was emanating a magnificent healing light because Barbie told her that she forgave her. Not only did Barbie forgive Princess Marika, but she didn't remember anything about the sunglasses. To Barbie, the action that had driven Princess Marika, sometimes into deep depressions, was completely 
insignificant. The next day, Princess Marika had a session with her therapist, and she recalled the panic she had felt when she was sending Barbie that long overdue apology, and how Barbie didn't even remember the occurrence. Her therapist laughed and said, see what happens when we build things up in our heads? Logically, Princess Marika knew that her therapist was accurate. Quite often, she would build things up in her head. But when it came to Princess Marika's soul, she knew that her apology wasn't nothing. Princess Marika had invited against Barbie. And Princess Marika knew she was better than that action she made in the past. The apology was incredibly important for her own release from the prison of her own mind. The apology was necessary for her own freedom, and no prince would ever be able to come in on a white steed and rescue her from the shackles of her past actions. This was something she had to save herself from. Since that moment, there wasn't a day that went by where Princess Marika didn't think about what a beautiful soul Barbie was. There hasn't been a day that goes by where Princess Marika doesn't feel oodles of gratitude for her. Gratitude for releasing her from a really stupid, cruel action she took when she was a kid. Gratitude for the grace she exuded through her graceful and effortless forgiveness of Princess Marika. After a year passed from Princess Marika's apology to Barbie, the publication ban was finally lifted on Princess Marika's name. And a few weeks after the ban was lifted, she was heading off to Israel with her prince, who she had just freshly wed. But before her prince carried her away on a 727 to a land far, far away from everything she had been praying to be rescued from, Princess Marika found herself at an old friend's house for one last get-together before she moved across the ocean. To Princess Marika's surprise, and for the first time since the Hell Rodeo began, she received the kind of apology she so desperately wanted. It was the kind of apology she never imagined she was going to receive. Her friend said to her, I am so sorry I never came to the trial to support you. I should have been there more for you. I knew I should have showed up and been a better friend, but I didn't. And I'm so sorry I let you be alone through all of it. This moment, being shared over takeaway doses in the midst of a global pandemic, was an incredible gift. And Princess Marika could see the pain in this friend's eyes as she was making this unprompted apology. Her friend had just admitted having invited against Marika. This moment was a big deal for both of them. Princess Marika remembered how scary it was to talk to Barbie about something she so deeply regretted. She remembered how much grace Barbie showed in that moment. And she thought about what kind of person she wanted to show up as now that the publication ban was finally lifted. Princess Marika replied, Thank you for saying that. 
and it's okay. I know at this point in history, we were all still figuring out how to be in those moments. Maybe, just maybe, there was good karma from her apologizing and admitting you fight with Barbie. Or maybe Princess Marika's therapist was right, and this moment wasn't anything more than a silly coincidence. Logic and reason aside, the instant feeling of relief and healing that comes from admitting you fight is something that years of therapy can never fully grant a person. Princess Marika knew that both her soul and the soul of her friend felt a huge, beautiful release in that moment. And Princess Marika began to trust, once again, that the universe works its magic and writes things in its own time. Although having trust in the universe didn't necessarily make the pain of waiting or letting go any easier, it did give Princess Marika faith that things would work themselves out in the end. Always. Before I close this chapter, I want to talk about something I'm really disappointed about, which is how I have witnessed and experienced the abuse of power when it comes to apologizing or actively choosing not to apologize from our mentors and elders. I believe that apologizing has become an experience that doesn't feel good, largely due to how the elders in our communities have shaped the experience around it whether it be from favoritism, biases, or simply an abuse of power. So because there are so many instances of leaders within our communities who force people into apologies and forgiveness as an act of submission, which I actually believe is a psychological rape, a lot of times we don't get to learn what the positive release of a sincere apology actually feels like. It's my opinion that just like we have been working to become a consent-driven society when it comes to sex and dismantling rape culture, I think a huge missing piece of this puzzle is our desire to become a society that also takes responsibility for its actions. So much like sex, when we're forced into apologizing, it feels absolutely horrid. However, when we want to apologize, it's a beautiful release that has positivity attached to it even if the recognition of behavior is a painful thing to look at. Recognizing what we've allowed to have happen for so long, it's not supposed to feel good. But I do have faith that it can feel safe, and I do have faith that there's a way to find joy in this. Because genuine apologies don't solely benefit the victim. They benefit all of us. And that release we get from apologizing, mm. you know, I bet that if we started treating apologizing like coming, well, I bet that we'd be apologizing all the time. My name is Marika Freund, and this has been the first season of Peaches the Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and making it all the way through to the end. 
If what you've heard has resonated in absolutely any way, please feel free to head over to marikafroin.com support. And as always, I'm wishing you only the best and the most magical moments as we're all navigating this incredibly intense planet that we all live on. <laughs>